story is a is a framework for organizing a reality. And the reason that stories are so important to human beings is because they serve to answer metaphysical questions that we have about our own lives. You're listening to playwright, professor, and entrepreneur Andy Black, my guest on this week's episode of Michael Loves Indie. Hi, welcome back to Michael Loves Indie. Today's episode is with Andy Black about the power of narrative and storytelling. And where do I even start with Andy Black? He's someone who's had a huge influence on me over the past five, six years. Andy is a playwright. He is an entrepreneur and business consultant. He is also currently getting his doctorate living in Columbia, Missouri, uh, getting his doctorate in playwriting at the University of Missouri, so he teaches courses in playwriting as well. He's someone who grew up in Indianapolis, lived for two and a half decades in San Francisco, California, then several years ago moved back to Indianapolis with his husband and immediately got plugged into the Indianapolis arts community, producing plays, teaching playwriting, in addition to managing a uh, a busy um, career in consulting, consulting to companies as large as Fortune 500 companies, to startup uh, companies and organizations. He's done uh, a lot of facilitation for the organization that I work for, Indie Chamber. I have sought him out as an executive coach over the last five years. He's helped me a lot because I've always been so impressed with his ability to integrate his business life and his playwriting. He integrates them as if they're almost seamless. I think that really comes through in the conversation. And Andy has impressed upon me the importance of narrative and the importance of storytelling, especially in an age where we're connected by technology constantly. There's information overload. You know, there's the expression, we're rich in data and information, and not so much in knowledge and then in wisdom. And I just wanted to have a conversation with him about how he's integrated his business life and his playwriting and how he advises people to incorporate story and narrative and arc into their day-to-day work. And I really enjoyed this conversation, and uh, I hope you do as well. So without further ado, here's Andy Black. Before we get into this topic of how storytelling and narrative can improve your work and improve your life and things like that, I want to um, go a little bit more into your background. But I think I think you had said that there's a there's a story that you want to tell. Yeah, no, I thought it would be a great way to start our discussion. You know, if we're going to talk about storytelling, I thought I might might start by telling a story, if you're okay with that. Great. So um, the story is about how how I discovered storytelling fundamentally as an adult and what it means to me now. 
And uh, so uh, in um, 2009, I'm going to go back 11 years. In 2009, I took a sabbatical. I was a, bi- a very successful business consultant. I have a master's degree in industrial and organizational psychology. And my area of expertise is basically adult education. I did a lot of workshop and, workshops and seminars uh, for adult learners in corporate settings. And so I took a sabbatical from my consulting career. I had a creative side that I was exploring, and I felt that I wanted to develop that. And I had this secret idea that I wanted to uh, get an MFA in playwriting and maybe ultimately teach playwriting, because I had had some success as a playwright already. So I took a sabbatical from my consulting career. I got accepted into the MFA program at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio. And I had a really, I had a great experience there, and I learned a lot about what I'm, what I will call narrative. And the guy who ran the program there, Charles Smith, was an expert in narrative, and he strongly believed in the structural components of narrative. Now he knew what they were intuitively, but because my, over my career as an instructional designer. I have had a lot of experience working with smart people who knew things, but they didn't exactly know what it was that they knew. And my task as an instructional designer is to figure out what it is they're doing intuitively so that other people can do it intentionally. So I was able to identify when Charles talked about narrative, there were seven key elements of narrative that he kept referring to over and over again. So I'll set that aside for the moment. I graduated with my MFA in playwriting from Athens, from Ohio University in Athens. I moved to Indianapolis, Indiana for a variety of different reasons. And I started teaching playwriting at the Indiana Writers Center. Now I was enormously successful there, more successful than I felt like I had any right to be. Uh, When I started with my first class teaching playwriting at the Indiana Writers Center, I had three students. Uh, Well, all three of those students had their first plays produced within six months of having taken my class. And the word kind of spread. And the next thing I knew, I was teaching advanced classes. We were having to add additional sections and put people on waiting lists. And I was teaching three sections a year. And I was actually making more money for the Indiana Writers Center than any of the other faculty members. I loved it. I loved what I was doing. So I began to think, you know, I've got something going on here. I'm doing something right. You know, what is it? So um, I uh, I really thought it might have something to do with those seven key elements of narrative that I talked about before. Because I felt that there was a framework or almost like a formula for writing a play if you use those seven key elements that made it easy for people to write plays that they liked and that other people liked. So what happened was I began to think I needed to do more research on those key elements of narrative. And one of the elements of narrative is plot. So you set up the story at the beginning and then you pay it off at the end. You know, uh, you know, Dorothy goes to the Emerald City or goes to Oz at the beginning and at the end she goes back to Kansas. But there's a whole lot of stuff that happens in the middle. That's all plot. And I will say that a lot of writers, myself included, have trouble figuring out the plot. They have a great idea, a great beginning, and they know how it needs to end. What they don't know how to do is what's in the middle. So this became an area of research for me. And I stumbled across a book called The Seven Basics.
And there's a theory among storytellers that there's a fixed universe of plots that keep getting told over and over and over again. Different theorists have different ideas about how many there actually are. And Kurt Vonnegut, who is a well-known Indiana-based writer, thought there were eight. I mean, different people have different ideas. But anyway, I found this book called The Seven Basic Plots by Christopher Booker. And I read it. And what I read in that book made smoke come out of my ears. It was so exciting to me. And what Mr. Booker did was he, he read so many stories and was able to identify seven basic frameworks that kept showing up over and over and over again. And he came to the conclusion that each of those different formula stories is driven by a different metaphysical question. And the reason that stories are so important to human beings is because they serve to answer metaphysical questions that we have about our own lives. And that there are essentially seven metaphysical questions that every human being has during their life path. And the most famous stories of all time are stories that serve to answer those questions. Well, this was like amazing to me because I'd never really thought before that when I was helping a student write a play, I might ask, also actually be helping them to answer a metaphysical question they had about the experience of being alive. So that kind of elevated my role from the role of teacher to the role of guru in a certain way. And I really actually, I felt that was great if I was actually helping people answer questions they had about their own experience of being alive and that was something that was worth knowing and what i realized as a result of that journey was that understanding narrative and how narrative functions is actually a really important spiritual and psychological tool and i began to see applications of what i would now call the seven basic plots in a wide variety of other situations and actually what ended up happening michael was that this discovery led to my decision to go back uh to graduate school and get a phd and i'm currently working on a phd in theater and performance studies at the university of missouri in Columbia, Missouri, and what I'm studying right now are these principles of narrative and storytelling as a way of understanding them better, myself, and potentially the power of them for other people. So that's kind of, of the story about me and narrative and then how it came to the, the today that you and I are having this conversation yeah. about narrative and storytelling. I, I appreciate that. And, and, um, the story that you told, which then gets us up to the present time, triggers so many different questions. And I think I want to go back to this discovery that you had around, you know, about 10 years ago. Um, and that is, it's almost like this, this one, of, one of my thoughts has been um, human beings are, it's almost like the seven basic plots and other books and other research has argued that human beings are hardwired. You said metaphysically to understand these certain stories and rhythms and that your influence on me and many others has been an understanding of those stories helps you uh, communicate your thoughts to other human beings and, and also maybe more importantly, makes you 
more prepared to receive information and, and, and seek to understand. Is that, did I get that right? Well, what I would say, Michael, is that story is a, is a framework for organizing a reality. So the first person that understands the story is the person who is making it up, right? You know, we organize our own lives, our personal lives in terms of a story. So, um, I mean, if I did, you know, the story that I just told, you know, here we have, you know, the story starts with a guy who's learning a lot about narrative and decide he wants to do something with it. So that's the start. The end of the story, which is the goal of the story, is he wants to get a PhD. And then the plot is Andy moves to Missouri and begins to work on a program which is gonna help him get that. So that's how I've organized my own reality, right? So then, um, and you have your own reality too. I mean, and it functions at a very simple level. You have kids, right, Michael? Yeah, uh, three three okay. young kids. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Okay. So, how old is your youngest kid? Five. Five. And what's his name? Remind me. Theodore. Theo. Okay, Theo. So Theo gets hungry. Okay, what room of the house might Theo be in when he would discover he was hungry? Kitchen. Kitchen. So he's in the kitchen. He's hungry, right? So that's where the story begins. So what's Theo's goal? What becomes Theo's goal if Theo is hungry, Michael? What would you say? Find something to eat. Find something to eat. So the goal is over here to find something to eat. So the plot of the story is what do I have to do to find something, to get something to eat? Yes. So what are some of the strategies that Theo might engage in in order to find something to eat? Go to the... Uh, cabinet and reach for food, go to the pantry and reach for food that, that he can reach. Um, another strategy might be if he doesn't see anything within reach, ask one of his parents uh, to, to, help, to help him get uh, food that he wants. Yeah, so if, if Theo is like five years old, right? And he already yeah. understands the structure of reality. Yeah. From the perspective of the story, he knows that when he's hungry, there's a need. He knows that something is going to have to happen to fulfill that need, and he already knows a series of steps that he can take, right, to get from where he is to where he wants to go. So from a very early stage in our life, we understand the construct of reality as a story. We need things. The things that we need are someplace other than where we are, and there are things that we have to do to get to those things, right? So that is hardwired into us, right? And even, you know, I, if you're, if Theo was, you know, I'm going to assume that when, uh, I don't have kids of my own, so I don't know that much about developmental psychology, but I can imagine that there was a time in Theo's life when he would be pre-verbal and he would be able, he would start to cry and yep. your wife, Helen, would know that what that cry meant was that he was hungry. Yep. I try. How, I, I how try to be. How old would that be? It probably like like one. Yeah, I try to be observant, but nobody nobody understands those cues like mom. So yeah, yeah. So that'd, yeah, so it'd be like. Well, yeah. dads are pretty good, but twelve yeah. at twelve months, Theo understood that if he began to cry, then he was going to get that yeah. need met. Yeah. And of course, your wife has her own story going right. on. Oh my God, I have a crying That's child. Right. My goal is to make my child stop crying. So there's a variety of different things that the mom does in yep. order to. So that's another story. That's the mom story, right? Yep. 
So from a very, very, very early age and very deeply hardwired within us, we understand the anatomy of the story. So any time that we can leverage that anatomy or that wiring when we're interacting with other people, it's, a, it's like a shortcut right into yeah. people's neurological hardwiring because they are going to understand what it is that we're trying to communicate if, in fact, we can leverage the construct of the story yeah. in order to get that information across to them. And, and I, know, I know that anytime we're talking about art, you hate to commodify it somehow. However, the L, when you talk about these fundamental elements of storytelling, they, um, they make me think of um, uh, in uh, marketing and communications and things like that, we are taught that the best presentation or group facilitation contains elements of tension and release. And, yeah. and, and um, I'm aware that, uh, take the seven basic plots, these plots have been um, uh, remade and retold over generations because within them they create they contain many of those elements of of tension and release that sort of keep a, whether it's a, a a fan of the play or someone at your business presentation can kind of keep keep them keep them attentive of an even edge of the seat right. Well, yeah, what I would say is, you know, we've already used two examples of stories just in our conversation, you know, that, that Theo is hungry and Theo wants to eat and Helen has a crying child and she wants to comfort her child so that he will stop crying, right? So, I mean, and those uh, dynamics are universal. So anytime you tell a story about somebody that's hungry, you know, people are automatically going to get it because everybody on the planet has had the experience of being hungry. If you tell the story about a mother who has a child in distress, I mean, you're going to get 50% of the planet on board like that because most women are going to understand that dynamic and are going to respond to that call. So the, when you tell a story that has some kind of a un, universal applicability to a wide variety of human beings, people are immediately able to drop into that story from the perspective of the who's the person from whose perspective the story is being told are going to be able to relate to it in a really powerful and primal way. Yeah. And so when you're telling story, if you're a, a marketing person or you're soliciting a donation for your organization or you're a salesperson who is trying to show how the enterprise that you're part of uh, can provide a valuable service to a customer, when you're able to trade in on those dynamics of story and those universal human needs, it increases the likelihood that people are going to understand uh, what it is that you are saying to them and respond the way that you might want them to, or inappropriately, I guess I could say. So getting started in incorporating this thinking into one's work, I'm, I'm going to, I'm picturing two, I'm picturing two challenging uh, cases that are totally different from one another. And I want to test this. So one is you brought up the example of the engineer who's got a lot of technical knowledge. I have a colleague who comes to mind brilliant on the most technical areas within his field of expertise. And the, I mean, seriously, he, he amazes me with his capacity. And um, he's gotten better at his level of presentation. But 
what I would say is uh, he, we, we have a regular conversation. My constructive criticism is the information as it comes out is just rat-a-tat-tat and it's so intense. Boom, 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 boom. And there's not really a rhythm to it. And there's so much good content in there, but you really have to pay attention. Okay. And this is um, something I've seen with maybe also people of engineering backgrounds or deep, you know, uh, technical expertise. When you find yourself in front of people of that orientation, how, how, how can, how do you even get them started? Well, what I'm going to say is there's, there's two, there's there two things immediately come to my mind. And um, I think that everybody needs to understand the, let me tell you the story about how, why I'm here today model, which is how I started this interview with you, Michael. Let me tell you the story about what happened to me that I came to be an expert on narrative and I'm having this phone call with you. So I would say that I would work with the engineer. You're in, which, can you, uh, let's say his name is Fred. I would work with Fred. And I would say, so Fred, tell me the story about how, about this, if it's a discovery, like it's an engineering discovery and an engineering principle, I would say to Fred, so Fred, tell me the story about how you stumbled upon this thing that you know how to do, right? And then Fred would tell me the story and I would make notes. And then I'd say, well, did I get this right? which I probably would have, <laughs> and I would have simplified it sure. as I went. And I said, okay, Fred, so what I'm going to suggest is this is how you need to start off, right? You know, because if you, it's like the, the story, the phrase, let me tell you a story. It's like a magic, it's like magic. And all puts us immediately back when we were six years old in Mrs. Ryan's first grade class. And it's story time right after lunch and everybody gets their little blankets and their crackers, right? So if Fred, the engineer, can figure out how to introduce his um, sophisticated complex content with a very simple story, that is going to be step one. The second step is that a story always involves a protagonist. There's an actor or there's an individual, an actress, some person who is the agent of the story. So what I would try to do with Fred, the engineer, is identify who is our, who's the proxy for this engineer? Is it, are you talking to other engineers who are going to be using this content? Then let's go ahead and tell a story about an engineer with a problem for whom the concept that you are talking about is going to solve his problem right yeah. so then we have a story we have an engineer with a problem we have sophisticated technology that fred knows about that sophisticated technology is provided to the engineer with the problem he uses it and voila his problem is solved so what we're able to do then is to take this con complex concept around engineering models and frame it as a story of a person who gets a problem solved and then everybody and everybody in the audience who's ever had a problem and if they're engineers in particular and have had engineering problems they're going to be right there with Fred and then by the end of the presentation they're going to see how Fred's ideas could help them solve their problems yeah that's that's interesting the proxy the another the other case I'm thinking of is um the person who says, I, Andy, I, I can't, I, I hear what you do. I don't have anything interesting to say like that. I can't, I can't make it interesting like that when it's maybe it's a, it may be pointing to a confidence issue, um, you know, for that, for that individual. 
Um, and when I'm thinking about, you know, just how you, how you start and open up this line of dialogue with, with, uh, some challenging cases. You know, the, um, I'm going to say that I have to say, Michael, that rarely actually ever happens to me. Okay. Be- because the situations that I find myself in when I'm interacting with people, it's usually with people who are already have some bias yeah. towards coming up with something. Yeah. And, you know, the, I, there is there's research. That, somebody shared this research with me. Ninety percent of the people in America think that they would like to write a book about something. Yeah. I don't know what the, all yeah. those books are. I don't know who all those people are. Yeah. But if that statistic is accurate, it would suggest that most people deep down inside think that they have a story to tell. And then the question would become, okay, let's talk a little bit about that. Right. Yeah. I really think one of my, partly my role uh, as a teacher and as a coach is to get people to listen to people when they talk. Yeah. I think that there are a lot of people who have been told that they're not creative or that they don't have anything to say, and they've internalized that story about themselves, and that if they can get someone who's encouraging and supportive and willing to listen to what they're thinking, then it actually unlocks their creativity in a very powerful way. And, so. and- and it seems like one thing I've learned from you over the years um, is I, I'm a, I think I'm 55, 60% on the extroverted side. So kind of toward the middle, but definitely lean extrovert. And there's a, there's a discipline of sitting back, asking questions and drawing out the other person at times for me, yes, resisting the temptation to want to speak and want to share. And that it's almost like it's a learning, learning how to ask questions and, and kind of sit back and, and, and extract the interesting story from a person is something that can be taught and learned. Is that, is that an accurate I think that, you know, if you're looking at this from the perspective of the coach or the teacher, I do think that some people, you know, there's when we teach skill building, we talked about knowledge, skills and aptitudes. Right. So there are some people that I think the more have an have more of an aptitude for being able and willing to listen to other people. There's some people that are better at that than others just naturally. Um, And I would say that most of us have the capacity to develop some skill in that area where if we're really paying attention to our own behavior, we can uh, interrupt our own tendency to want to start to take over the conversation and tell our own story rather than listening to somebody else's. So I think that's probably true. So in, it would be, it would be interesting to observe you in your university environment because you're getting a PhD. You have followed a non-traditional path, you know, a business career, um, become a very prolific playwright taught playwriting and yet you're very open about how understanding these um kind of archetypes of narrative have been foundational to your success do you do you run into people saying well andy you've just these forms that you're using you've just now commoditized i'm gonna use that word again you've just now commoditized the whole thing uh 
I'm, I'm an artiste. You know what I mean? You're trying to put me in a box. You know, do you, do you, have you been met? Have you, have, has your philosophy been met with some resistance in an academic environment? Yeah, I would say yes, uh, to a certain extent. What, what I, the, what I have come to believe, um, uh, my understanding, you know, the, the concept of the left uh, brain and the right brain, are you familiar with that concept? Yes. You know, we have two hemispheres of our brain, which actually help us deal with incoming reality in a couple of different ways. And the right brain is the hemisphere that deals with the unknown, the unfamiliar. And then the left brain is the part of our brain that deals with things that we already understand and are familiar with. And basically, you can divide reality into those two categories, things that we know and things that we don't know. So we have two hemispheres of our brain, each adept with dealing with one part of that reality in a different way. And what I have discovered is that the formulaic approach, the seven key principles of narrative plot, the seven basic plots, appeal intuitively to people that are left brain because they like those orderly systems, they like those structures. And and I have to confess, I've realized through this whole process that I'm a little bit more left brain. I like those formulas, I like those structures, I like to put things in a table format so I can see that everything has been filled in. The people who don't respond as well to that model are people that are more right brain. They like, it's like having a dream. They like the free flowing of ideas. They don't want to be held back by the familiar structures. They want to do things that no one has ever done before, right? So I have come to act, and what I will say is that a person like me, my uh, uh, writing sometimes runs the risk of being a little too dry and a little too predictable because I don't access as much of that creative energy. So what I have learned in the course of my research is that the two hemispheres of the brain have to work together, right? And so if, in fact, you're somewhat drawn to the formula, then what you need to do is challenge yourself to think about reality in a new way. If, on the other hand, you're more drawn to the experimental or the free-flowing structures, eventually you're going to have to put something down on a piece of paper so that other people can bring it to life. And that does involve writing one, two, three, four in some kind of order. Right. So what I have discovered and what I think is true is that uh, people with the different biases towards different kinds of creative action really need each other or they need to develop skills that are not necessarily in their own wheelhouse. So what's happened to me over the last years, uh, last few years is I've become a lot more respectful for the kind of individual that you're describing, the individual who doesn't want to be held back or wants to do things a different way, I think those are really, really powerful impulses. And what I like to think that I can do with people like that is help them organize their creativity in a way that allows them to do something uh, productive with it. And I will also say, I think for the beginner, when you're starting out, it's almost like when you're, you know, the analog is like if you're learning to play the piano. If <laughs> you know something about Mr. Huber, the piano, I mean, sure. the way you begin is do, re, mi, fa, so, la, the scales. You have to base it to scales. And while it can be really fun to sit down and bang around on the piano keys randomly, and eventually that's going to stop being fun. And then people aren't going to like what you have come up with. 
So what you need to be able to do with words as well as with keys on a keyboard is figure out how you can keep the process dynamic and uh, spontaneous while at the same time mastering the basic elements of craft that are going to provide the foundation for really robust creativity. There's a, there, there is a, um, there's a parallel to what you're talking about in terms of story and music, certainly, you know, um, and uh, a lot of composers or songwriters have written that if you want to do something really creative and if you want to have any kind of an audience, it helps to know the form that you're in, whether it's popular songwriting or classical composing, because it's, it helps, it helps to know the rules before you break the rules. And, and, and that's uh, that, um, you know, and that's, you know, you could, you could go out and make free form, like you said, free jazz music. Um, but unless there's some reference point to the form, you're probably not going to have a very big audience, you know, cause there's not anything to draw, to draw people in. So I'm just, it's interesting. You talk about um, that right brain approach, maybe some of the tension uh, with really understanding these fundamental plots. Uh, it made me think of parallels in music. Um, good, well, sorry. one of the theorists that I, um, that I really like talks about genre and he uses genre in kind of a unique way because he talks about different categories of writing as genres. So writing an article for a magazine would be one genre, or writing a blurb for a website or a blog. And, and plays would be a particular genre, right? And within that genre, there's like, it's almost like a bell curve where you have things that are wildly experimental with like no, you know, real uh, formula at all. And then you might on the other end have things that are very, very formulaic to the point where they become predictable, right? So I think the challenge for the writer is to understand there's a wide range within your own genre, and then to figure out where do I really wanna play in this particular space that I'm in. Uh, and And particularly, if you're writing, I think you have to know what your own intention is, too. Now, this has to do with playwriting specifically, but it can be any kind of writing at all. If you want to get it out there, yeah, if you, I mean, if you want to just write something, you know, in a journal in your own, you know, bedroom, and nobody's ever going to read it, you can write whatever you want. But at a certain point, if you want to get something published, or if you want to get something produced, or if you want to get paid for it, then you need to begin to think more strategically about how am I going to position this work, right? And so that does involve these kind of genre considerations. And, and as you were saying, you know, to what extent the, the form that I'm in, is it a popular form? Is it a classical form? Beginning to think about those things and asking yourself those questions. I was at a very, very in interesting panel last night with a bunch of playwrights. And this, it was so funny because there were five of them and they were talking about writing mysteries. And one of the women on the pad, I'd never met her before. She was like really oriented towards the business side of playwriting in a way that I had almost never heard anybody talk about it before. But she was talking about limiting the number of characters because the more characters you have on the stage, the more salaries you're going to have and the more expensive. If you can produce your play in only one set, then that means you're only going to have to build one set. It's going to be cheaper to produce. And there's a certain extent to which thinking about those practical considerations uh, can be very important in terms of getting your work out there. 
And uh, while I, I have a lot of respect for the artist that just wants to create and see where it goes, that can be satisfying in its own way. It could potentially limit your ability to actually get any traction with your work when it's complete if other people perceive it as a big psychological mess and don't understand what you were up to. So, so that, that brings up this issue, which it's kind of like these, these narrative forms reinforce I think in some ways constraints that, that help you. And you, so, so one thing I know about your uh, teaching playwriting while you're here in Indianapolis and it's impacted me because you've, you've encouraged me in music to uh, do various things to overcome fear and self-criticism, which is something that I think for those of us who want to write or play music or put something out there, it's overcoming that, that uh, initial, this is really bad, this is terrible, who am I to write this impulse um, prevents us from even getting started. And I wonder, just because you've, you've encouraged me to try to overcome that fear and self-criticism to, to just get, get in that groove and produce and, and really edit and, and, and overcome that fear and self-doubt if the... Um, these seven basic plots or, you know, archetypes can, can create constraints to, to help one, um, you know, uh, uh, get going and overcome those kind of fear and doubts. Um, what I, I, what I think, um, and I'm thinking, I'm going back to my own situation, teaching, um, playwrights, but I think once, as I mentioned before, the um, the first three women that I had in my first playwriting class had their plays produced within six months of having written them. And I think one thing that can be really encouraging to the new playwright is to have an early success where your work gets produced. And I'm going to say, speaking from personal experience, there are a few things uh, that are more thrilling. And I think you understand this as well as a, as a composer yourself. There are a few things that are more thrilling than seeing your work, getting to see your work performed and getting to see how an audience responds to it. Absolutely. And so um, I feel that if you follow the basic uh, story form and if you're actually leveraging, if you're drawing on one of those metaphysical questions, it really increases the likelihood that a complete stranger is going to look at your work and find it compelling and want to do something with it. And so I think that is um, uh, really important to the beginning storyteller is to have that kind of early success. And so I think that can actually help a lot. So, Once, yeah, so I'd say that's definitely true. Yeah. Um, so um, I'm interested in terms of what, what are, can you elaborate on ways that um, narrative and understanding of storytelling helped you in your business career? You know, as, since in the time I've known you, you've done um, consulting for uh, large, some very large corporations, including overseas. So you're, you're even crossing um, cultural lines within large companies as you're doing that kind of, you know, facilitation and things like that. You just had, you've, you've, you've had a, uh, just in the short time, the, you know, less than a decade that I've known you, you've taken on a very wide range of, um, clients in different industries. Um, are there things that we haven't talked about yet where you find yourself, you know, drawing from your playwriting experience and understanding of story in your business career? 
Well, uh, what I'll say is something you said triggered me. You know, story, the story format is is universal. It's uh, transcultural. The, and uh, like, for instance, if you take this, the creation story, you know, uh, in West, Western culture, it's Adam and Eve is the creation story, right? You know, but every culture has its own creation story, right? So this story is about how the planet came to be and how human beings became who they are is a story that's told in every culture around the world. Right. So, and it doesn't matter what language people speak or what color their skin is or what geographic location they inhabit. They have their own version of the creation story. Right. And it f follows some very, very predictable models. So one thing that's great about the story format is it really is highly inclusive. Um, I was always a, a really good storyteller before I learned about the principles of narrative. So what learning about the principles of narrative did was reinforce for me a lot of the things that I was already doing, what I would say intuitively. Um, but one of the, it's interesting because uh, one of the models that I work with when I, um, I, I teach change management. <laughs> so this gets really, uh, you know, hardcore, you know, global, corporate global, you know, or co corporate uh, application, excuse me, is the concept of change management. So you have a, something you're trying to change, a change you want to make in an, in an enterprise. Um, so the in order to help you, the employees in your organization or the stakeholders in your organization who are going to have to participate in this change, you have to know how to tell the story of the change. And I had a change model that I worked with um, for that I worked for, with for many years, and in the company where I was taught the model, we called it Circle Arrow Circle. You know, it's a change model. Here's where I am. This is where I want to go, and this is how I'm going to get there. It's basically the story of Theo in the kitchen. You know, Theo's hungry. Theo wants food, and how is he going to get there, right? So that was how we taught. Although I didn't, I didn't teach the part about Theo. I just taught it conceptually. And what I really realized as I was learning about narrative is that change model that I had been teaching for many, many, many years was actually much more powerful than I had ever fully realized, right? And if you uh, are a, um, uh, an organization is going through change and you are a leader in the organization you needs to communicate about that change to people who are going to have to participate in it or who are going to be affected by it, you have to know how to tell the story. Yeah. And the story needs to be really pretty simple so that people can get it. And if it's as simple as Theo was, hingo, was hungry, Theo wanted a sandwich, Theo opened the closet door and got out some bread and peanut butter and made himself a sandwich, people are going to understand the story, right? And I work with um, clients all the time where basically my job is to help them figure out how to tell the story of the change, whatever the change is, so that they can um, be effective. I'm thinking about a, a global company which was start initiating a, uh, a, a global coaching process, right? And uh, the, the challenge that they had, sales team, it was a sales team. So um, there was a differential ability among the salespeople in the group. Some salespeople were better than others. And so then the question was, how do we, and so that's where they were, where they wanted to go was they wanted everyone to be skilled at about the same level. 
right? They wanted to share the wisdom that the more senior uh, experienced people had with the people that did not have that level of experience and capability. So that's, and where they decided to initiate a, um, a set of coaching circles. So the plot of the story was a series of coaching circles that were designed to help take those employees who lacked skill and turn them into employees who had skill. So we were actually able to position that initiative in terms of telling a story of the change so that everybody understood what was going on, why we were doing it, and what part they were going to play. And what, one thing, you know, there's that expression that a picture is worth a thousand words. And sometimes I say a story is worth a thousand pictures because you can convey so much information about what's going on in, a, in an organization or in a situation through a story. And you can do that actually in a very economical way. You've hit, you've hit on a really important one um, that I think has um, lessons for a lot of people because I think about um, even in high-performing entrepreneurial cultures of companies and organizations where people within the organization feel empowered, I feel this, um, at the, the leadership level, there's a tendency just, well, it, let's just move on to the next challenge. Okay, we've, then we've moved on to the next challenge, move on to the next challenge. And um, um, I'm thinking about um, um, how, if you're a leader who thinks, well, Andy, this, this sounds, the, the story of our company, this sounds compelling, but I don't know, does it sound somewhat self uh, aggrandizing is that the word or does it sound does it sound like um uh you know self-referential you know how would you how would you uh uh persuade or make the argument to that that leader of the company you know it's so funny i was in a um uh, i was working with a company that uh, this is, uh, I don't know if this is going to answer your question. I was working with a company that manufactures medical equipment. And the team that I was working with was the HR team. And there were probably 11 or 12 people on the HR team, you know, recruiting and HR business partners and HR systems. This was the makeup of the, the people who were on, on this HR team. And um, the, so we're doing the strategic planning process. And it was starting to get challenging because we had a lot of information. People were looking at it at different levels. It was a lot of analytical work. And I thought, okay, the team needs to refresh itself a little bit. So I spoke to the vice president of human resources, who was the sponsor of the whole effort. And I said, you know, I think we need to tell some client stories in our next sessions. Because what we really need to do is to get back to the, um, power of what it is that we do in this company as a way of kind of reframing the effort that we're engaged in. So, uh, and I said, what I'd like to do, um, uh, Craig, his name is Craig. I said, what I'd like to do, Craig, is I'd like to have you take the lead and then open it up for two or three other people to share their stories. And he said that was fine. So he told his story. And I, I, can't, I don't remember Craig's story, but one of the guys talked about uh, how uh, when he was thinking about going to work for the company, he told one of his friends that he was in an interview process with them. And he said, oh, my God, that, and I talk about it now, I feel emotional. That company saved my life. 
right? Because he was uh, familiar with their product. I'm, I won't say the, the name because I haven't been authorized by this company to use their story. But uh, but uh, he was familiar with the product, and the product had saved his own life. So in that room, it was a virtual room because we're all online, we had a very powerful example through story of how the technology that that company manufactures had saved the life of a friend, of a person who was on the team. And the story of how the friend's life had been saved was so compelling. It was one of the things that influenced this individual to go to work for the company, right? So when you talk about um, stories seeming like self-aggrandizing or as if we're a kind of blowing our own horn, you know, if you find the right story about your company or your organization and tell it in the right way, it will touch something very deep inside the listener. And there's no danger that they're going to perceive that story as something that's being told to make the teller look better. Yeah. I mean, in the way you said it, so this, um, this very self-referential quality, I have to say, it's something that you see a lot in tech today and that's informed by some of my close friends who work in tech. And yet your, I start to think, you know, stories rooted in generosity, you know, doing, you know, doing something, doing something real and measurable for someone other than ourselves. Um, could, can really take hold the story that you shared about it's, you know, having an impact, saving people's lives. Um, and I do, I, 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 think I, I think I glossed over one of the very fundamental points about narrative and, and this, and I want to, I want to ask you for, for reflection on this because I, I, back to the art um, aspect of storytelling, it's also like, uh, it seems like a, a great story has a way to put yourself in the shoes of another person or put yourself in another situation that you may not ever encounter in your lifetime in a way that nothing else can, um, that you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't intellectualize that is the immersive experience. Yeah. And as it just so happens, I was just reading about this morning, this, this morning, I have a book here called the companion to digital literary studies. Uh, immersion, she says, she calls it immersion, which is that experience of uh, being projected into a virtual body. And she says, uh, let's see, Marie Laurie Ryan says, immersion remains the most fundamental of literary pleasures. I mean, that's why we read books, is because we want to immerse ourselves. We want to be projected into a virtual body and we want to be able to get the experience. We get to have the experience of being somebody other than who we are. And yeah, so that's as that sense of immersion is one of the things that we really go for. So it's almost, it's almost like, um, this might be a leap, but it's like, so if I'm, if I'm taking your work and I'm coaching one of my team members to incorporate, uh, uh, narrative into her presentation of information to a group. Can, can I say, and, and not it be an exaggeration is to my colleague, um, 
most people want to be transported into another life or another uh, some someone else's world that's that's a part of our experience so you shouldn't shy away from even though it's this business presentation taking them on that journey inviting them to go on that journey is that something i is that something i and others can say you can say that although you know i i feel like the theory is not is, is not going to be that helpful to the person that you're coaching if you just cuz i worked with a, uh somebody that was in you know a a uh, development or advancement work for a uh organ i think it was a university it was in an open enrollment class that i did and you know so we you know we needed and he was trying to raise money for um if I recall correctly, it was like minority scholarships, right? So, you know, the coaching was, so who, tell me the story about somebody that's gotten one of your scholarships. So what happened? And it was, uh, the story involved a young, again, when I start to talk about it, I feel emotional. The story involved a young woman whose brother had been falsely accused of a crime. Right. And I can't remember the specific consequences that were associated with the false accusation, but they were pretty dire. And so what ended up happening was the woman, the sister, decided that she did not want anybody else to ever go through what her brother had been through. So she was going to go to law school and become a lawyer. And because of the family's circumstances, they never would have been able to afford to send her to law school themselves, but she got a scholarship and she graduated. And now she is out there doing that good work and preventing other people from having the experience that her brother had, right? So that's the story. And I, I probably taught that class, I don't know, four years ago. And yeah. you know what, Michael, I can still remember the story. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the takeaways I think is for uh, those of us in organizations in leadership position and positions in organizations, one of the takeaways from this account, from the account of the, um, the uh, man who joined the company because of this life-saving product that they made is that it's almost like, um, you know, if someone came to you and said, how, how do I get started? One, my, one of my takeaways, Andy, tell me if I'm wrong is, start to observe the amazing stories that are already right under your nose. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And, and because we, we, and because we organize our reality as story, when we're working with somebody else, it actually is pretty easy to extract those stories because that's, yeah. we have millions of them coded in our neurology, right? But it's almost like a giant database. Yeah. And we sometimes have trouble accessing our own database. Yeah. Right. So it's almost like I'm able to enter a little search code and say, search for client story. Yeah. Right. And then the person can search. Right. And then once they get the client, I can say, okay, now search for client need presenting issue. And then they find that. Right. And we're able to actually work through that giant database of their stories to find the story that's right for the situation yeah. they find themselves in. So. I want to I want to shift a little bit, and this is really my last line of questioning. You've been incredibly generous with your time, and I, I know this conversation is going to is going to continue because it, it's helped me so much. Um, you know, part part of your life as you advise people and 
is, is, and I know this is very something that's very um, core to you too, is helping people under, uh, helping people overcome their own fears, anxieties, bad habits, all those, and really just have, really just have a better life. Um, and I think that some of your encourage your, there's, there's a part of you that's very wired to that, whether it's helping um, playwrights get their plays produced. You know, you, again, you've helped me a lot just in overcoming fear and becoming much more um, prolific in music is, and, and fundamental to that, I think is seeing yourself in a story you know, making, making yourself the hero of your, of your own story to oh, overcome, yes. to, you know, to overcome fear and, and, you know, um, unhealthy behaviors and all kinds, all kinds of things too. Um, does that factor into your, you know, your, your studies as you work for your PhD and work with your students is like putting, putting yourself at the center of, of, of the story to, to, to overcome obstacles. You know, there's a variety of different ways to answer that question. You know, the, um, uh, sometimes I, I kid around with people or I have fun with people where I say, well, of the seven plots, which is the one that you're working on right now. And I'd say for myself, the pl plot that I'm working on is the quest and the quest is for the PhD. Right. And um, one of the uh, the um, uh, characteristics of the quest plot is that there are allies and there are adversaries. Right. So I am looking for my allies and people that are going to help me to achieve my quest. And I'm wary of my adversaries, which is a way I use those basic elements of that basic plot to help me organize my reality around this. Now, in terms of the hero, I really the one of the things that's interesting about the seven basic plots is that they're basically all stories that are designed to contain wisdom about how to be a hero in one's own life. You know, how do you overcome the monster? How do you manifest your brilliance? How do you achieve your goal? Um, uh, and the, the, there's one uh, story, the tragedy story, which is what happens to somebody who tries to take advantage or does something unethical. So it's like a, uh, a case study of someone who's gone down the wrong path. You know, this is Macbeth, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, he, he's too ambitious. And he takes fate into his own hands and he ends up suffering terribly at the end of the story, right? So those are this, the plots are basically all, um, uh, it's almost like a recipe book for how to be a hero in one's own life. And I do fundamentally think that uh, people want to be the heroes of their own lives and they're struggling to figure out what the heroic path is. And I do think that these narratives provide that. Um, uh, and those are the kinds of narratives that I'm actually the most interested in. And I think it has to do more with my psychological and my spiritual worldview, right? Because those are the kinds of stories that I'm interested in, the stories that I like to tell. And I think that um, there's really important information in those stories about how we can um, achieve that kind of, you know, in a certain way, mastery or have a meaningful experience in our human bodies in the world that we live in. And one other thing that I'm going to say that was triggered by uh, something you said at the beginning, Michael, is this concept of unconditional positive regard. And there's a, a psychologist named Carl Rogers, who was, who was one of the pioneers of what we would now call talk therapy. And one of the things that he said is that the reason that um, talk is because the, the therapist holds the client in unconditional positive regard. 
And I really think that um, uh, in a creative work, uh, one of the things that allows us to unlock our own brilliance and to figure out how to tell our stories is if the uh, the environment is one that's full of unconditional positive regard. Because as people are talking, I in, in one of my university classes the other day, this um, I had a student, you know, I have 25 students in this class, it's all on Zoom. And one of the students was pitching an idea about a man who had an abusive father, right? And one of the other students said, well, what was the abuse all about? And the student said, um, uh, well, quite frankly, this is based on my own personal experiences. So I don't know that I necessarily feel comfortable describing everybody to everybody what that was all about, right? And I... Thank, I acknowledged what he had said. I said, thank you very much. I think this is a great question. I think this is a great response. And we all bring our own personal experiences into our creative work. Absolutely. Right? And if we weren't doing that, then the creative work that we were creating probably wouldn't be worth creating in the first place. Right? So the fact that uh, people feel safe to bring their material their story or their explanation or their backstory into a room and know that their contribution is going to be honored and respected and treated with compassion, I think is a really, really important part of the process. Yeah. Just the, you know, the, the, to, to end it, the kind of on a, on a high note, um, this, this whole conversation is really, it brings up so many other ideas, but this idea that by becoming aware of these stories, I'm tapping into something core to the human experience, maybe metaphysical, but then that, then the deeper the understanding and the more that I can um, understand other people, cause it's a, you know, it's a way of organizing my own information, but a way of organizing what I'm getting from the world. Maybe that um, reinforces these, uh, whether it's my own um, generosity productivity, just give, you know, giving, being of service to other people. It's almost like this self-reinforcing cycle of myself, you know, learning from the heroes of these plots, you know? I yeah, don't, I don't, exactly. Exactly. You know, exactly. Yeah. Something about that. Well, it's, uh, it's definitely inspiring stuff and, and um, hearing how you, uh, you, you know, have integrated these, uh, these multiple different careers is is uh really fascinating and and I'm, I'm sure i'm sure we'll continue to talk about it but i'm just incredibly grateful to how much it's impacted my life um uh, just in the past you know five years of knowing you um and uh, i know it's got a lot of uh wonderful takeaways and lessons for others as well so i just appreciate you taking the time andy i'm happy to i love talking about this stuff i think you can tell so i appreciate the chance to talk about it.